on um, marriage. And the last week was marriage in Eden, and we saw the God's design and, and the ideal that was held out uh, for man and woman, and the first young couple, and the um, description of what a marriage should be in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 23. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And Moses says, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. The God's ideal there. But this morning we're going to look at marriage and exile. Marriage and exile. Because as we look around and see our society around us and even see our own families, it's very obvious that this is not how it always is. It always was. And it is interesting that in Genesis chapter 3, it was to a beautiful, perfect marriage that the serpent carefully launched an assault upon creation and God. It was not government and politics that he went to. Of course, it hadn't been instituted, but that was not where he realized the fabric of society would unravel. It was not through the economy he attacked. It was at the core of God's creation. Beings made in God's image and delegated to represent his reign over it and produce families of image bearers that he, the serpent, assaults. He goes right to the root, and the root here is the marriage. In Genesis 3 and verse 1 it says, Now the serpent was more subtle, more crafty, than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. This morning we're going to see uh, four, S, five, four or five S's here this morning that break down this chapter here of marriage. First of all, we have the seduction. The seduction. Look in verses 1 through 3. Oops, sorry. Thank you. The woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. The serpent understood that everything in human existence is a worship issue. Did you realize that? Paul said, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. And therefore, everything in our lives is a worship issue. It betrays in our hearts what we are upholding as our highest and supreme authority. The Ten Commandments God gave to Israel said, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Nothing ahead of me. Nothing ahead of me. And the serpent goes to the woman and he says, Has God said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Now notice, he does not go to the woman and say, hey, did you think about trying this one on this tree that you were prohibited from? No, he starts out with a question here. Has God said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? You see, if Satan can swing the compass of her heart to another direction, if he could take an external magnet and swing that needle to... To, uh, to, to, to a selfish direction, another pole to focus on, he could bring, bring death into, a, into the scene and setting of what had been before, very abundant life. Satan understands that God is to be all to us. He's all-encompassing. 
And Satan wants him to be nothing to us. You see, there's, there's no middle ground. There's uh, part of God and part of another agenda. No, it's all of God or nothing. If Satan can divert our marriages, he can cause a series of succeeding dominoes to fall. And here is his temptation. He's saying this. He's suggesting to them, is God really good? Is God really good? Because friends, if God is all good, as scripture says he is, he can be trusted in all things and obeyed. It's all or nothing. It's all or nothing. And notice how Satan twists God's abundant provision into a bad thing. Do you remember what God had given them in Genesis chapter 2? He says, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. God had given them abundant provision. And notice how the serpent hones in on the one thing that they can't have and makes God's abundant provision a bad thing. He says, has God said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? He doesn't come into the garden saying, look at all this that you can have. Look how God has made you. Look how he's made you in his image. Look how, look at his design for you. Look at what he has, he's given you. This, this woman uh, here at the end of chapter 2 that you know called bone of your bone flesh of your flesh. Uh, look at all he's given you. He says, how come he didn't give you that one tree? That's what he says. And friends, this is how Satan works in our marriages, in all of life really, but specifically in the application of marriage. God has given you so much, your spouse, and he want, and the devil wants you to look at what you don't have. And friends, if you are not looking to God, it's very easy to hold up a human and say, yeah, they don't have this. They don't have that. They're lacking this character trait. They're lacking this, this feature. Whatever it may be. And that's the way the devil works. That's not how God works. God wants us to, 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 to delight in his provision. But Satan suggests to the woman that God's provision is actually insulting. And it's confining. Here's what he's saying to the woman. Eve, queen of the garden... This God, who said everything was good, is holding back from sharing everything with you. And He is limiting your dominion, your prowess. Did He not say you were to exercise dominion over all this creation? He is limiting your dominion in your experience. Don't you see this is a problem? That's what He's saying. And it does its work. That seed goes into her heart because she begins to doubt. You can see the way that she responds to him in the following verses. This, 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 this fiery dart that does its work and there is a shift you can see in her response. Look what she says. The woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest you die. She says... In other words, she says, yeah, he won't even let us touch it. That's what she's saying. And she says, in essence, he's holding something back from us. I see what you're saying here. He's saying, she says, um, uh, lest you die. And he had said, 
in chapter 2 and verse 17, you shall surely die. You shall surely die. So she's limiting the consequences, kind of watering down the consequences for this. And then in verses 4 through 7, the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day you eat thereof, that your, then your eyes shall be open, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. He pushes it a little further. He says, No. He denies what God says. You shall not sure, surely die. <clears throat> he says, The reason that God is holding this back from you is that He knows you're going to be like Him. And, and isn't that why He made you? You're in His image. And He springs and He contradicts God's truth. And she lets that poison seep in. And in verses 4 through 7, you have the sin. The sin. Because verse 6 says, And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. You might be asking, okay, where's Adam in all of this? He must have been on the other side of the garden. And she yelled out to him, Hey Adam, come over here and check this out. Look, I got this fruit. You try it. And he said, Oh, okay. No, that's not what happened. Because notice what verse 6 says. She gave also unto her husband with her. He's with her the whole time. He's with her the whole time. You see, in verses 1 through 5, the conversation uses plural pronouns. In other words, Satan is talking to the woman, but he's also including Adam in this. And Eve is responding and saying, yeah, us. But later on, in verse 16, it's a singular pronoun because God points to Adam as the responsible one. You see, God had made Adam the head, but he had given him responsibility. God, in chapter 2, verse 15, took the man and he put him in the garden to dress it, to, to, to upkeep it, to, to take care of it, and to keep it. And that word keep there means guard. And did, did Adam guard the garden? No, he did not. Did Adam guard this woman that he says, she is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh? No, he did not. And Paul will say later on in the New Testament that Eve was deceived, but Adam was not deceived. He willingly took of this. In other words, he is absolutely responsible. He watched evil progress and he was passive and he did nothing. He failed to exercise his role as the head of that home. And his role to guard the garden and to guard his family. He failed to live out that one flesh relationship. And his wife acted as the head there because Adam was passive. And that breakdown of the design of marriage swung the gates open to death. Adam was not a loving leader. He was a passive, lack of a leader. 
And look what verse 7 says. They knew it. They knew it. You see, after they sinned, then they entered into shame. They were ashamed. When the eyes of both, them both were open, they knew they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together. They made themselves aprons. They tried to cover up their shame with their own ways. And their first step back to Eden, or their first step out of Eden here, is a step of self-sufficiency, self-righteousness, self-help. And friends, uh, in your marriages and in your relationships, your step back to Eden and God's design for them is not by covering your sin. It's not by self-help. But the step back to Eden, the step back to how it should be, is an open honesty about our selfishness and our problems. Um, And the opportunities that I've had to uh, counsel um, people in their marriages, one of the things they need to understand when they are, when the sides are against each other, husband and wife are against each other, is to, to stop blaming the other person, right? Now, this may be true. One person might be 70% of the problem, and the other person might be 30% of the problem. That may be true. Many times it's not. But if it is, what they need to understand is they need to focus 100% on that 70%. They need to spend responsibility on their part and not worry about the other person. And that is not what happens here because it unravels pretty quickly and relationships are strained and they start blaming each other. And when you start doing that, you will not move back to Eden. You will move further and further in the serpent's direction. You will not have true peace with each other until you have peace with God. And peace with God comes through a transparency, a broken and an open heart before God. This is simply called repentance. And for some reason in Christianity and and, and, in America, it's a missing element. We can believe these facts and and, and know know these truths, but repentance just seems to be absent. Uh, there, there is not a recognition of my sin as against God. And that Psalm 51 uh, character of what a repentant heart is absent. But friends, that is a step back to Eden. Back to God's rule. Back to fright fellowship and restored relationships. You will not have peace with each other. Marriages, husbands, wives, until you have peace with God. And wives, husbands, you cannot make your spouse have peace with God, but you must assure that you have peace with God. You see, running from God just smears the stain deeper. And we're only hurting ourselves, and we're only avoiding the inevitable. Think about it here. When they start blaming each other, did it help anything? And what did it end up doing? God ended up visiting anyway, right? You see, the serpent likes it when we convince ourselves that we can push our sin under the rug or push it away and God will forget about it. But God in His love pursues them. He pursues them. You see, the Scriptures say, say that the broken will see God's face. 
They will see His presence. They will see His power. And God is gracious because He first loved us. And He shows this love, this reconciling work, by confronting them. He pursues them. And so, after the shame, we have the sorrow that comes as God pursues them and brings their sin to light. By the way, we can open those doors. I don't think there's noise going on down there and it's warm. We need some air going through here. At least I do. (laughs) You see, when God confronts Adam and verse 9... Verse, let's go back to verse 8. They heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou was naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me. You know that woman you gave me, that gift you gave me? That one that I said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. He says, well, my tune has changed now. She was actually, that was actually a bad thing, is what he's saying. She gave me of the tree and I did eat. It's her fault. And the Lord God said unto the woman, what is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, the serpent beguiled me and I did eat. And she was correct, by the way. And the Lord God then said unto the serpent, because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly thou shalt go, and dust thou shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, her seed, her descendant, and thou shalt bruise his heel, her descendant's heel. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. And sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And to Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. And sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee. And thou shalt eat the herb of the field. And the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken. For dust thou art and unto dust thou shalt return. There are two things that were cursed. The serpent and the ground were the things that were cursed. There were after effects Things that Adam and Eve would have now experienced because of the curse. But the serpent and the ground were the things that were cursed. Adam's pride resists, but God graciously pressed in. Adam shifts the blame ultimately to God for giving a wife. And, and the rest of them seem to follow suit. But God speaks in verses 14 through 19. And here is a sorrow. Here's the consequences. And verse 14 and 15, here are the consequences and the sorrow. But God loved them enough. And God pursued a relationship with them as their, as, as their lover. That turned even the sorrow into hope and joy. And God speaks in verse 14 and 15 to Satan. He says, Satan, first of all, Three things. Satan was doomed. Satan's craftiness led him to damnation. Secondly, Satan would be humiliated. He would not be able to hold his head high. His life would be reduced to crawling on his belly. And thirdly, Satan 
would be crushed. He would be crushed. War would be declared on him and man is offered salvation out of this. It's a catastrophe, isn't it? But it's a catastrophe that God brings good out of. I'd like, you to, I'd like to take you to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 22 and listen to these verses. For as in Adam all die, death passed upon all men for Adam's ancestral sin. Even so in Christ shall all be made alive. That's an explanation of Genesis 3.15. That that descendant is the Lord Jesus. Romans 16.20, Paul tells us this about the serpent. The God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. You see, in this sorrow, God brings hope and God brings glory. And in the... In the uh, 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 Living out of a broken marriage, God gives a north star to focus on. He he, he gives a, a a final deliverance and a hope to set your eyes on and set, and fix your fix your fix your soul on uh, as you go through broken marriages. Notice the description to the woman. He says in verse sixteen, <clears throat> under the woman. He said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. He says two things. First of all, remember the command? They were to multiply image bearers. He says, as you do this, and as you fulfill this command, you will suffer in childbirth. And without modern medicine today... It's happened over the years, hasn't it? And even with modern medicine, right? quite obviously. She will suffer in childbirth. The woman will pay a price for the world's future, in other words. But there's something else he says. He says, And your desire shall be to your husband, and he shall rule over you. In other words, the one flesh relationship will be corrupted. I've always heard this verse explained as this means that she will desire to be dominant over her husband. But that's not what it says. That's not what it says. What it says is her desire, her craving, her longing um, will be for her husband. For her husband. And the result is he will dominate over her. In other words... This is what it's saying. It doesn't say her desire will be to rule over her husband, does it? Is that what it says? It doesn't say that. It says her desire will be for her husband and he will rule over her. What it means is I understand it and my, my interpretation of this is this. That she will desire a man to have a relationship with. And she will, because of the fall, she will put that man in a wrong place. And she will put that man as the answer to all her problems. She will always be looking for a prince charming. And when you put a man in place of God, he's going to do a very poor job. The result will be he will rule over her. 
He will exploit her. He will be selfish. He will use her for his own gratification. He will dominate over her. He will be critical over her. He will not be her lover or protector. And friends, without Jesus, that is true and that's what goes on in this world, isn't it? For every supposed woman that tries to dominate over their husband, there are ten others, right, that are looking for some kind of satisfaction, ultimate satisfaction in their spouse that only the Lord can bring. It does not say her desire will be to rule over her husband, but her craving, her longing, her worship, her longing for, is for men to give her affirmation and security. And only God can do that. Only He can meet that. And she will set up a man as an answer. Her knight in shining armor, she will find her identity in that. And the result is unfortunate, harmful relationships. You can see that all over this county, can't you? Homes with live-in boyfriends, right? And the result is if you would talk to the Department of Health and Human Services and Child Protective Services, they will tell you that just about every, every account of sexual abuse is because of a relative who is allowed to live in the home or a live-in boyfriend, you name it. And this is why God's grace is so needed here. This is why we need redemption. And husbands, you're never supposed to be Jesus for your wife. But you're supposed to point to Jesus. You're supposed to be like Jesus, but you can never be Jesus. Wives, your husband is not Jesus for you. Jesus is Jesus. No one can stand in Jesus' place. But husbands, we are to lead people to Jesus. We're to love like Jesus does. So many problems in marriage are because there is not an identity in Jesus. And this is why we need redemption. You say, well, how does this play out with the man in Adam in verses 17 through 19? Well, he says in Adam, because you have hearkened unto the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree, which I commanded, he's saying, thou shalt not eat of it. The ground is cursed for your sake. And sorrow you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns also and thistles shall I bring forth to you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. And the sweat of your face shall thou eat bread till thou return unto the ground. For out of, his, out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and of the dust shalt thou return. Think about this, okay? It is very difficult to earn a living, isn't it? It doesn't just happen, does it? Not too many people born with silver spoons in their mouth. There's few. Work is now difficult. Adam, in chapter 2, verse 15, had work in the garden in perfection, the dress of the guard, the garden. But now work is, is, is extremely difficult. There are pressures. There are stresses. Uh, there is a striving that men make to build an empire quickly. But how quickly that is shattered, isn't it? It's like building sandcastles on the shore. And then the waves come in and there it is, all that hard work gone. Do you think that affects marriages? Do you think man's work affects marriages? Absolutely. How many marriages have been cast aside by men trying to climb the corporate ladder and spending ridiculous hours trying to please their bosses or trying to get to the next step, trying to get to the next position, 
How many stresses and pressures over financial situations ruin marriages? You know what the answer to that is? Almost every single marriage counseling case is connected to finances. Somehow, one way or the other, extremely frequently. And so this curse, their choices affect marriage. And this is what we can see and experience today. That this earth, the curse of the earth, wears you down. And it will wear your marriage down. And when you put an unregenerate human being in this world's circumstances, it's a recipe for disaster, isn't it? But here's the good news. Here's the good news. There is a Savior that is mentioned here, and I shared this with you on Mother's Day. Look at Adam's response in verse 20. And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Eve meaning life. I think that what Adam understood was from this woman and from this life that he had plunged humanity now into death, there would come one who would give life. Certainly, by birthing children, more life would would come. But eventually, according to Genesis 3.15, there would be one who would destroy death and the devil. And so Adam re-fixes his eyes on the Lord. And when he names Eve, Eve, he is hoping in God's promises. God's command to the man and woman that they would multiply and fill the earth with more image bearers, have dominion over the earth, So he is seeing succeeding generations, isn't he? And he is already told, as he listened to God's voice to the woman at Genesis 3.15, that one of her descendants will be one who will crush the serpent. And he knows in his mind that as she gives birth and as she gives life, down the road is our final hope, Jesus. Now, I don't think he knew that his name was Jesus, but she knew there would be one who would restore and redeem. He understood that, I believe. And so you have our Savior. And friends, Romans 5.12 tells us that that, that, that Adam brought death, so Jesus brings life. Jesus brings life. Listen to Romans chapter 5. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. And verse 17 says, For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace And the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Adam brought death. Christ brings super abounding grace to broken, humble, undeserving sinners. And yes, humble, undeserving sinners who are married to each other. 
and verse 20 of Genesis 3, he is rejoicing over Eve. Though he has plunged humanity into death, Christ brings life, real life. And yes, they will be sent out of the garden into exile. It will be a broken world, but there is a new tone. There is not a tone of condemnation and disaster. There is a tone here of God's grace as it enters. And friends, only the good news of God's Son renews broken marriages and exiled people. The Bible is all about a marriage. Began with these two in the garden. And in the end of the book of Revelation, you know what it ends with? It ends with the Son of God having the marriage supper of Lamb with His bride for all eternity. You see, the key here as we understand the fall and marriage and exile is that God doesn't need anything else but believing hearts. As God sent them out of the garden at the end of chapter 3, you know what He did not take back? He did not take back their marriage, did He? As He sent them out and they continued in their family life, and you read in chapter 4 that it, they had some serious, the fall was pretty serious as their son kills his brother. But as they care, as they leave the garden in exile, God sends with them the gift of marriage. Because marriage is a reminder, is to be a reminder of all that is good. Marriage is to be a reminder of Eden. And they are still to follow God's design in that. And so are we. And he and in Genesis chapter 2 at the end where they, where they are to be bone and bone, flesh and flesh, therefore they are to leave, a man is to leave his father and mother and is to cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh is still by God's grace the description of marriage even in exile and in a broken world. But friends, it's only possible through Jesus, isn't it? Because when you say I do at the altar... And you make those vows. By the way, we make those vows because we need those vows. There's a reason we make vows at the altar. We are vowing in for better, for worse. But when you make those vows, what you are really saying is this. Through God's grace, I am a sinner and I will experience the brokenness and fallenness of life. But because of Jesus... My hope is not in my spouse. And I can be faithful to the role that He has given me, husband or wife. And I can do it through Christ who strengthens me. Now I realize across this room are a whole plethora of different complexities and nuances and relationships that you face in marriage. But I will tell you this, that by God's strengthening, by His power, Because He promises to give you exactly what you need for every day and every moment of every day, you can always accomplish God's will by His power.
And that includes marriages that are broken. God enables you to be faithful in your role. You can't change your spouse. Adam couldn't change Eve, and Eve couldn't change Adam. But you can go to the one who can, and you can respond properly in your role. When we look at Genesis chapter 3, Genesis chapter 2 was such a beautiful picture. Genesis chapter 3 makes us say what went wrong. We can take with us that the same hope that Adam and Eve had to put before them in their walk. And as in their sorrows, as they saw their son die, murdered by his own brother, and other following uh, 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 examples and circumstances, they set before them the Redeemer. And Jesus is the only one who can redeem the broken realities of your marriage. And their hope is our hope today. Except today, we look back and see that Jesus already came. We see that He kept His Word. And we know that He's coming to make all things right.